And we are recording with the two kings of misinformation, which I say <laughs> that I say that obviously jokingly, as you are both incredibly credentialed and always back things up with sources and citations and are both walking encyclopedias. Neither of you are new to the podcast, but this episode with the both of you is with Dr. Peter McCullough, who has been on here who knows how many times and instrumental, if not key, in getting me permanently banned from YouTube, which I still love. And of course, my buddy George Webb, investigative journalist. But I want to put this together, and it's kind of like an event horizon. I don't actually know what's about to happen, but I know that George is a fan of Dr. McCullough. And uh, I don't know, I'm kind of like a mad scientist. I want to see what happens when I mix two beakers and just let it go. <laughs> so, George, I'm going to actually let you take point on this one. Well, great. Uh, thanks, Tommy. It's a, a great honor uh, to interview you, Dr. McCullough. And you know, you've done a lot of really great groundbreaking work uh, on myocarditis. I think that's the first thing that everybody looks to as one of these adverse effects. And um, I know you do a lot of court, you know, you've been involved in court in terms of getting drugs approved, and you know how to present uh, scientific technical information to a lay audience. Can you give everybody kind of an update of the latest and greatest in uh, research you've been doing into myocarditis? You know, the, the COVID-19 vaccines, the messenger RNA vaccines, uh, uh, Pfizer, Moderna loaded on lipid nanoparticles, and then uh, Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca outside the United States, the adenoviral DNA vaccines, again, also on lipid nanoparticles, uh, they have all been shown in the peer-reviewed literature to cause myocarditis or heart inflammation. Now, our CDC and FDA officially recognized this in June of 2021, and heart inflammation is serious. Myocarditis is a serious diagnosis. Even in the initial tranche of Americans that were afflicted by vaccine-induced myocarditis, you know, well over 90% were hospitalized. And that's been shown now in multiple series. So anything that takes a young person and, and forces them to be hospitalized is serious by its nature. Uh, what we've learned is that uh, this heart inflammation occurs because uh, the vaccines install the genetic code for the spike protein. The spike protein is the bud on the surface of the, of the virus. It's the uh, part of the virus that was engineered through research from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and the National Institutes of Health. Uh, this is well documented in papers published in Nature Proceedings and the uh, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences by first author Menacheri and senior author Barrick in 2015, where they engineered the spike protein to invade human cells. This is well, uh, again, well documented. Now, the work was done in the biosecurity lab annex uh, level four in Wuhan, China, since the research couldn't be done in the United States. But the spike protein that people are enjoying in their bodies right now is a product of U.S. research. Well, these vaccines all contain the genetic code for the spike protein, and then they install it into cells in the body. And when it's installed into heart muscle cells uh, and, and the cells that look like it, they, they take it up, it's called the pericytes. The spike protein instantly damages those cells, causes micro blood clotting, uh, and then it incites inflammation, causes white blood cells and, and other uh, factors to come into the heart. And, and then it manifests as chest pain, difficulty breathing, uh, it can manifest just as immediate sudden death, as we've seen in scores of athletes. And then it sets in a process of scarring the heart. And this scar, scarring of the heart is seen by late gadolinium enhancement by cardiac MRI. And pivotal papers by Jenna Schauer in the journal Pediatrics has shown that these scars are substantial. They are very large. Uh, let me give you an example of the left ventricle, anything more than 15% is considered so large that an implantable cardiac defibrillator would be put in an adult if it's scarring from a heart attack, for instance. In this case, there's scar reported at 20%, 25%, 30% scar, massive amounts of scar uh, damage in the heart from myocarditis. And in fact, now 200 papers in the peer-reviewed literature with fatal cases published by Gill, by Choi and Verma. Verma was uh, published in the Wing of Journal of Medicine. So this has been on the minds of American doctors that uh, people taking the COVID-19 vaccines could suffer heart damage. We know that 90% of cases are men, 10% women. So there's 
something to do with uh, you know probably male androgen receptors or the interface between various aspects of male physiology. <coughs> and we know the peak age is age 18 to 24, as published in a paper by Scharf and colleagues from Kaiser Permanente Northwest. But I think the bombshell paper uh, was just published from Bangkok, Thailand. And it was a study called a prospective cohort study that the FDA wanted Pfizer and Moderna to do. So when the FDA issued the biological licensing agreements for Pfizer and Moderna, they said, you must do a prospective cohort study and tell us who, who is really getting myocarditis. Prospective cohort means you check the patient out before they take the shot, and then you check them out again after they take the shot to see who really gets the problem. It's a thorough study. And in Bangkok, Thailand, they used uh, state-of-the-art equipment we would have used in the United States, EKG. They used the Roche cardiac troponin blood test, uh, state-of-the-art echocardiography. And then in those who uh, had suspected myocarditis, they did cardiac MRI, the best quality. And we were shocked to find out that about 2.5% of kids age 18, 13 to 18 after shot number two developed myocarditis by a multidimensional definition. Um, a large fraction of them were, were asymptomatic, called subclinical. Two kids were hospitalized. That's how sick they were. But the point is 2.5%, that's about 25,000 cases per million. That's much larger than what the CDC originally projected as 62 cases per million. And this large fraction that's subclinical now has people really worried, meaning the kids and young people will take the shots. They won't feel heart damage occurring. And then the first manifestation could later on be sudden death, either while playing sports or commonly while sleeping. Or or in special ops training, as we're seeing more and more. And Georgia, I know you're about to say something. If I could real quick, Dr. McCall, could you just, when you talked about the, the stud at the, a product of U.S. investment and research in Wuhan, China. You said that was 2015. Yeah, the the pivotal papers published by by Menachery, first author in Barrick, uh, were published in, um, in Nature Communication and Proceedings of the National Academy of Science in 2015. The work had been done from 2012 to 2015. All of this is summarized in Peter Bragan's book. COVID-19 and the global predators. He outlines 36 pandemic preparedness planning <coughs> events, including these papers. And, and of these 36 events, 25 of them generated documents like these, and six of them were filmed. You can actually watch them. So the, the virus was clearly being engineered in a U.S. operation. Now, they were working on the threat, and in the same papers, they were working on the answer which was going to be a vaccine or monoclonal antibodies. And they have similar programs for smallpox, monkeypox, and anthrax. But I want people to understand this was U.S. research that went bad. Uh, the research happened to be done in the, uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now, that, that uh, Wuhan Institute uh, <coughs> excuse me, is important for George, Georgetown and the audience to understand there's a connection there. Because a billionaire CEO, Stefan Bainzel, who was the CEO of BioMeru, that's the in vitro diagnostics company from France, they built the biosecurity annex for the Chinese. And Bainzel left BioMeru in 2011 to join Moderna as the CEO. Then he starts working with the Chinese on developing the vaccine, and they draw patents between Moderna and the U.S. National Institutes of Health. George, this is your wheelhouse. Yeah. Well, so uh, Stephen Bensell with, uh, you know, would be the person who would most benefit, right, at, at Moderna and DARPA by a worldwide breakout for something that was being studied at the Wuhan lab because he, they did build it. So I absolutely agree with, with that. Um, can we? I just take a little turn down the medical sure. la lane uh, with the inflammation cascade that you described. You said the parasites, which I, um, I are you now. You, you're saying that in the out, outer part of the cell, the where the ribosomes are, to supposedly make the vaccine right from the mRNA messaging. Are you saying also that some of the uh, messengers are getting to the actual nucleus and 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 making a 
genetic change, like a, a crispering themselves into the uh, the DNA? Is is that what you're saying, or no? Well, first, the 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 bulk of the spike protein that's produced after the vaccines is doing exactly what the vaccines are designed to do. They install the genetic code, and that genetic code is read in the cytosol by ribosomes. And the genetic code is not disclosed, by the way, to the public, but it's theorized that it's humanized um, because uh, uh, because of, uh, you know, the ribosomes have to read humanized segments of uh, of code in order to produce the spike protein. If it was purely foreign code, the human ribosome wouldn't read it. It just, you know, just, it would, there's what's called stop codons that would stop it and it would be, you know, it would be a done deal. But the fact that it reads it and produces a full spike protein means it's been humanized. And in a recent paper by Nunez and colleagues from Florida International, there's striking homology between parts of the spike protein and human proteins, which is really amazing. Again, suggesting this is highly engineered. I mean, 20 or or so three-dimensional segments of homology. So of interest, one of the areas that's homologous is an olfactory receptor. So it's no wonder people have prolonged loss of sense and taste and smell. There must be an autoimmune attack after large exposures of the spike protein up in the nasopharynx, as an example. Another area, multiple heart proteins have uh, what's called molecular mimicry, meaning the body, as it's attacking the spike protein, is actually attacking normal proteins in the heart. Now, the the news was uh, broken by uh, first author Avolio and colleagues, in a preclinical model showing it was the pericyte that really seemed to be damaged by the spike protein. Pericytes are, are cells that support the, uh, the blood vessel network in the heart. They probably more avidly take up some of the messenger RNA. Uh, you know, we know cardiomyocytes are different. They're in the business of calcium and phosphorus handling and, and you know, contracting. They're, they're probably not going to take up as much genetic material as a support cell will or satellite cell. Of interest, even though a large mass of the heart is actually the contractile cells, the cardiomyocytes, the greater number of cells are the support number cells. And that was shown uh, in a paper by Stein and colleagues in circulation years ago. A lot of people don't know that. So in terms of you count up nuclei within a cardiac muscle, 70% is, is, not, is not myocardial cells. They're stromal cells, satellite cells, pericytes. Uh, also, uh, you know, there is a trafficking of immune cells into the heart. Uh, but your question gets to, does it reverse transcribe? This was uh, something that was on the CDC website for a long time. It's recently been taken down, by the way, from the CDC website. The CDC said for the longest time, don't worry, these vaccines won't change the human genome. They won't get into your DNA. I can tell you, uh, many were skeptical of this because data from Roken and colleagues from Stanford using human lymph node biopsies showed the messenger RNA from Pfizer and Moderna, they were stuck in lymph nodes for months. This stuff doesn't degrade because it's made with synthetic nucleoside analog caps. It's not natural messenger RNA, which is degraded after one use. Normal messenger RNA is degraded with an RNAase after one use. Pfizer and Moderna are stuck in the body for a long time because of these indestructible caps by, uh, by design. And so because they're so long lasting, it gives an opportunity for natural enzymes to line up other nucleotides in the cytosol and make a mirror copy of Pfizer or Moderna. And so this came to fore about six months ago in a paper from Malmo, Sweden. First author is Marcus Alden. The senior author and the one responsible for the research is a young woman, Yang D. Marinus. And this is a solid paper. It's not been questioned by any authority. And what they did is they took Pfizer in vaccine in physiologic concentrations and introduced it into a human hepatoma cell line, a liver cancer cell line, where the liver cells are avidly taking up uh, uh, fluids and, and other uh, micronutrients from the extracellular space. These cells readily took up Pfizer into the cytosol. And within six hours, the cells had reverse transcribed the code for Pfizer into the nucleus. And it was clear now, they relied upon a center a part of the code, a 444 base pair, what's called Amplicon. And, and that's a, a re- region that they knew could reliably report 
if it was into the, the uh, cytochrome, uh, the chromatin. And uh, what experts think is since they picked a middle segment, almost certainly the entire segment is transcribed because the, the reverse trans, uh, transcriptase was discovered and found to be line one. So putting this all together, uh, until we learn more, yes, Pfizer and almost certainly Moderna do reverse transcribe. They do alter the human genome. We, we ought to be conservative and assume what we do. And now the next questions are ones uh, that are very important. How many cells? There must be a mosaic of cells with each shot. It can't be every cell, but how many cells? And in what organs? And then once the genetic code is there, what happens? Does the human body edit it out and find it as foreign? Uh, does it start producing spike protein in a low-level constitutive uh, basis? Is it inducible in the setting of a stress? Is there a big surge of spike protein production? If spike protein is produced, does the cell immediately die? Or is it face expressed on the cell surface? Does the body attack it? Uh, recently on my podcast, I had Dr. Uh, 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 Paginus Polycretus from Italy. His theory is in his papers, he thinks every time the spike protein is produced on the cell surface, the cell is killed. So the body will cleanse itself of the spike protein, if you will. No one really knows right now, but all of this is not adding up to anything good for people who have taken the vaccines. All of these uncertainties now are making people even more hesitant to take a vaccine. And they should be because there's no assurances that these are safe short-term and definitely no assurances long-term. Tommy, do you want to say something before no, I ask my next question? No, 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 no. Go for it. Go Cause, for it. Because I want to go right to uh, filtering and uh, liver and pancreas damage. Um, uh, the If, let's say, the spike protein is kind of uh, causing cell death, because we've seen this high uptake with people with uh, insulin uh, production problems, you know, with type 1 diabetes, high mortality, and type 2 diabetes, high mortality. Is it possible that somehow the the root cells in the, in the pancreas, let's say, uh, islets of Langerhans, uh, Tommy's favorite thing from med favorite school. Um, could they be possibly being damaged as the liver and the pancreas are performing their blood leveling functions? It's possible, but you know, we don't see a large, re large number of reports for acute pancreatitis. For instance, there's been a few uh, reports on hepatitis after vaccination, and they've been all different types. They've been autoimmune hepatitis, fatal reactivation, hepatitis C, hepatitis, cholestatic, jaundice. But, uh, but, but these are pretty sparse. Uh, the, the big ticket items we're seeing is where the lipid nanoparticles, they, they go into the brain. So, you know, major intracranial hemorrhages. Uh, in a paper by Burhild and colleagues from three Nordic countries, it was stunning. This was published in JAMA. 7,750 neurologically devastating blood clots or strokes and people have taken the vaccine within 28 days. That was Pfizer, Moderna, or AstraZeneca. And they carefully ruled out anybody who had the infection. I mean, these are stunning, large numbers. The myocarditis numbers are uh, astronomical. In our US CDC VAERS system, uh, they're logging thousands and thousands of cases. And if the Manugian paper is right, uh, there are many tens of thousands of myocarditis victims out there right now. We know there are blood clotting disorders, uh, lots of them. Uh, and then finally, bone marrow disorders. One's called vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic purpurea. But we haven't seen much in the line of uh, pancreas uh, and, and, um, and liver. And it may just be a blood flow issue uh, and where the lipid nanoparticles go. Well, let's move to uh, uh, bone marrow, as you mentioned, and let's move to clotting then. Um, it, do, you, do you see an uptick in Van Wilderbrand's um, then with the stimulating factor eight to cause these microclots, or is it making it all the way to the bone marrow and, you know, getting to stem cells, getting to pluripotent stem cells to do that? No, first off for clotting, uh, the spike protein itself is directly thrombogenic and uniquely thrombogenic. It seems to be able to tip off the coagulation cascade without the need of platelets. We've never seen this before. <clears throat> it seems to uh, activate uh, the clotting cascade and form fibrin. And then because of the spike protein unique interaction with the fibrin, uh, it, it, it produces what's called a D-dimer 
or a, a fi fibrin degradation product. And uniquely, D-dimer seems to be a signal, both in the respiratory infection and in the, with the vaccines, that clotting is going on, a high D-dimer. And so it's a very important clue. Also, the clots uh, take on a, a uh, amyloid configuration. The spike protein must fold and it's considered amyloidogenic and more spike protein accumulates and it becomes almost like rubber. And what you're seeing in reports now is embalmers pull, pulling out large rubbery clots. And I, we can see them in my practice on ultrasound. These clots don't seem to go away with conventional blood thinners, which is uh, very disturbing. There've been fatal cases of pulmonary embolism uh, described. And again, in the respiratory infection with the vaccines and then with both. Remember, many people who have taken the vaccines have already had COVID, the respiratory illness. So my practice is exploding with people with blood clots right now and all different permutations, respiratory infection, vaccine, a couple of vaccines, then the respiratory infection. Uh, it's endless. And so anybody who's taken the vaccine, anybody who's had the respiratory infection, they have some provocative life event, like an ankle sprain and have to wear a, a uh, you know a immobilization boot or a hip surgery. I recently had a patient who had a complicated prostate surgery and probably blood clots in the prostatic and pelvic bed. He just presented with showers of pulmonary emboli and he never took the vaccine. It was just, he had prior COVID as an exposure. Jeez. Do you think that could be because there's some factor in the platelet uh, or in the, uh, in the clotting cascade, like a platelet attracting uh, a factor of PAF or it's, is it a cytokine driven, chemokine driven thing through uh, maybe uh, maybe an NF kappa beta type of thing? It's complicated, but there is a particular syndrome that's been more frequently described with the adenoviral vaccines, AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson. It's called VITT, vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic purpurea. There, there must be some homology with platelet factor four because you nailed it. The body forms antibodies to platelet factor four that pins platelets against the blood vessel wall, damages the blood vessels, and causes both clotting and bleeding at the same time. So the classic presentation would be uh, a young woman takes Johnson & Johnson, uh, uh, presents confused, uh, and has an intracranial blood clot, but at the same time is bleeding from the gums and, and mouth. Uh, that would be a classic VITT uh, presenting with a low platelet count. These are very difficult cases to manage. And, and again, it's so advanced. It's so clear the vaccine caused it. You know, it has a new name. It's COVID-19 vaccine-induced blood disorder. Um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about um, maybe some monocytes or some early precursors to the final uh, white blood cell or red blood cell that could be coached or being, uh, you know, coached in a different direction down the stem cell chain of, of development, possibly. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that Dr. Bruce Patterson has shown, he's the CEO of Incel DX. <clears throat> that the phagocytic system, the macrophages of monocytes are trying to handle the spike protein, but they can't clear it out very readily. And so the, the natural infection, the S1 segment is actually found stuck inside CD16 monocytes for up to 15 months after the infection. <clears throat> with the vaccines, both the S1 and S2 segment are seen within the same monocytes, at least for several months after vaccination. That's as long as he's, lo he's looked but it could be even longer than that. So spike protein <clears throat> becomes part of the cellular environment in the human body. And the concern would be in Patterson's first study is from sick people in the hospital where they've had weeks and weeks of exposure to the virus. The hope would be with early treatment, we've really had a limited exposure to the spike protein and kept all this pathobiology down to a bare minimum. With the vaccines now, we're just installing a genetic code <clears throat> which we know in a paper uh, 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 by Vertig that the uh, genetic code is circulating in the bloodstream for two weeks. And we know in a paper from Harvard by Elena Ogata that the spike protein is circulatory in the body for about a month. This is a long exposure, way longer than what someone would get with a natural infection. Okay, um, that's an excellent answer. Um, the um, 
the, the one question I've always had is about this long COVID and is that, uh, you know, scarring uh, around the lungs and it's calling, causing an ARDS, ARDS type of situation where there just isn't like a lung capacity that was before, or is it causing sort of like an arteriosclerosis with not enough blood and not a blood oxygen transfer from the lungs to the heart? What's your long COVID kind of theory right now? Long COVID are the persistence of symptoms, which can be an entire array. We try to divide them into different syndromes. You know, it goes back to the original research done by Ralph Barrick at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. He published a paper in uh, 1992, 1992, 30 years ago, demonstrating that coronavirus infections induced in animals, the virus can be in the body for months afterwards. And actually, in those papers, he showed coronaviruses that he's working with could cause myocarditis or heart damage in animals. So Barrick was in the coronavirus heart damage research 30 years ago, 30 years ago. Now, um, what we know, fast forward from uh, an autopsy study done by the National Institutes of Health, first author is Chertow and colleagues, showed that in those who died with COVID, the SARS-CoV-2 virus is alive and replicating in the body at a low level for many months after the infection, many months. So this is a disturbing uh, revelation that when someone gets COVID and they feel better in a couple of days, the virus could be in their body for many months. And as you pointed out, some with severe disease develop what's called an organizing pneumonia. And that's the pattern we see on CT. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not an active bacterial pneumonia. It's considered a sterile pneumonia, but it looks for all the world like, uh, like, like a process that we call a, uh, an organizing pneumonia. And uh, it results in shortness of breath, fatigue, chest discomfort. I have patients in my practice with this. I use a variety of medicinal approaches. And then a recent randomized trial from Israel has brought some hope where the first time they showed that a regular application of hyperbaric oxygen may start to improve things in the lungs. But you can see how in this interview, I'm quoting the literature and I'm having people be able to find the papers. Note in interviews with our public health officials or in the liberal media where they bring on these media doctors, they're never able to quote a single paper. I think the audience ought to readily to, should readily discern who is an expert and who isn't. Well said. Well, I know Tommy is a maven for links. So every time you, you quote a paper, we'll do a, a look up and we'll get the links in there. I know you you quoted about 30. So Tommy's got his work cut out. Right and here. a little bit of work to do. <laughs> but that's great. I, I love it when you go to the literature, because this is what, uh, you know, health professionals all over the world need, uh, because we get so much mudslinging and so much just attack ad hominem attacks on on. Scientists are just trying to help. We could make a lot more money in private practice, you know, 10 times more than, than spending so much time sharing their knowledge and information with us. So I, a big, huge thank you to you, Dr. McCullough, uh, for that. And then I can go right back in after I save my thank yous, right back into some more questions. Um, I'm interested in these cascades. You know, I'm interested is, is there an endocrinal or a chemokinal uh, disturbance then uh, where the body's um, balance is is thrown off uh, you know angiotensin or some, you know their insulin levels etc do you see any kind of long-term uh, uh, hormonal imbalances being caused by COVID? You know in our first seminal paper published in the American Journal of Medicine I'm the first author August of 2020 <clears throat> we highlight the importance in the acute infection of a particular cytokine, we've never seen an infection that leads with the inflammatory cytokine interleukin-6. And it's a very strong signal. We actually published a case report from our center of a woman who suffers a cardiac arrest in the ICU and she has a prolonged QT interval on the EKG. And in the middle of a, a, a red hot COVID infection, she suffers a cardiac arrest. And, and the lead cytokine was interleukin-6, which is known to prolong the QT interval. Of interest, she didn't receive any hydroxychloroquine. And at the time, people were pointing at hydroxychloroquine as a smoking gun, but it was simply COVID and uh, interleukin-6. But why this is of interest is that the cell 
in the body that produces the most interleukin-6 is the adipocyte, fat cells. And it explains, I think, why those who are obese, uh, who have such a difficult time with COVID-19, they get the viral infection, and then they get a raging cytokine storm led by interleukin-6. So that's what we know on the acute side. Now, more chronically, uh, you're asking about endocrinopathies or disturbances. <clears throat> One of the things we've seen after COVID, but far more commonly after the vaccines, are disturbances in blood pressure and heart rate. And uh, there's a syndrome called POTS or postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, POTS. And what we know now is the lipid nanoparticles uh, are distributed uh, to the adrenal glands, to the sympathetic chain in the, in the, in the neck, as well as in the brain. And the uh, production of the spike protein in some way must incite the generation of epinephrine, norepinephrine, and dopamine. Those are the three circulating catecholamines. And it's been well described in the journal Hypertension. It's been described uh, uh, severe elevations in high blood pressure in people who take the vaccines, particularly those who have baseline high blood pressure. Uh, so much so there can be intracranial hemorrhage. And some of you know the story of Miss Quinlan, who uh, was on Fox News around the same time I was about a year ago, more than a year ago, uh, where she took Moderna on the second shot and then had a, a, a very, very powerful rise in blood pressure, suffered an intracranial hemorrhage and needed a craniotomy and evacuation. She's been neurologically devastated since that time. We've had patients under our, in our circles with aortic dissection, uh, intracranial uh, hemorrhage or stroke. I've already mentioned the Hill data. So this rise in blood pressure and the lability of blood pressure is significant. There's some type of dysregulation between the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. Patients will tell you they don't feel right. The heart rate can reset 20 to 40 points higher for a long time. Uh, but my experience is over time, all of these tend to slowly get better. They may need some medicinal help, but they do get better probably as the body clears out spike protein. Now, there are sporadic cases of thyroiditis. Uh, there are no cases that I'm aware of of adrenal insufficiency or other forms of endocrinopathies, but I wanted to, I wanted to point out those salient features of the, this kind of sympathetic uh, nervous system abnormality we're seeing. Are you seeing, uh, you mentioned the perturbation of the uh, sympathetic and parasympathetic. Are you seeing vasovagal uh, syncopes where people fainting and, and so forth and that, that sort of thing? Yeah, more so just symptomatic tachycardia and hypertension, but there are cases of vasodepressor syncope. There's just a dysregulation between the balance of those two systems. And there are no randomized trials, but plenty of reports. Uh, in, in young people, I tend to actually use a modulating drug, a beta blocker that has intrinsic sympathomimetic capabilities called natalol. I'm using that now relatively fre frequently with good success. Tommy, I'm going to let you ask a couple of background questions because I feel like I've been uh, no. peppering. No, but I'm interested no. in the committees that you've been on. Um, you know, when we're trying to approve drugs, uh, like you just mentioned, um, you often have to give testimony from expert witnesses. And I know you've been a part of that. And this is something as many media appearances as you've made. I don't think people know that part of your background. So could you share a little bit about that? Sure. I've uh, uh, been on about two dozen data safety monitoring boards. I've chaired some very uh, highly visible data safety monitoring boards for the National Institutes of Health, actually for one of the divisions, BARDA. BARDA is one of the biological um, uh, uh, threat divisions. I chaired a data safety monitoring board for a, a nuclear threat uh, countermeasure at one point in time. But I have a lot of experience in pharmaceuticals, devices, in vitro diagnostics. So I know the standards and when there are excess deaths that emerge, I can tell you these programs are shut down quickly. There's no tolerance for someone dying of an experimental product. And we, we saw none of those safeguards in the big public program with the vaccines. You mentioned uh, BARDA and of course we all think the Rick Bright and uh, him uh, sitting, uh, you know, talking about how we could uh, isolate, a virus in, you know, Saskatoon or wherever, some remote place. 
uh, genetically sequence it, send it up to a satellite, send it to a center in Scotland, let's say, where they quickly came out with a vaccine, what, two days later, I think, three days later was the, the case. Um, being inside BARDA, I think you have a, a unique per- insight. I don't know if you've ever met Rick Bright or done work with him, but that all seemed a little bit too manufactured, like a manufactured crisis to a lot of us. It's true. I think a lot of the prosecution of the Moderna versus Pfizer lawsuit will bring all this out about uh, what was known about the genetic code for the spike protein and when. Um, It's pretty clear the genetic code is in the Barrick Menachery papers in 2015. So they had many years to work on the genetic code. It wasn't just discovered uh, when COVID-19 broke out of the lab or broke out of Wuhan, China. It was well known ahead of time. These were in NIH grants. And this is U.S. innovation that was working on the the spike protein. Now, you're right. NIH has BARDA, uh, Biologically Active uh, uh, Reactive um, Division. And then the military has DARPA. And so we do work on biological threats. There's a smallpox, monkeypox program. There's been an anthrax program. And since SARS-1, there's been a SARS program. And they're working on the threat as well as working on the answer. And the answer uh, in the Medicare papers was monoclonal antibodies. They were already working on those. Turns out those turn out to be a real winner of Operation Warp Speed. We've used those in our practice all the way through. And then vaccines. In the Medicare paper, they were just worked on a killed virus vaccine. Of course, the virus can be isolated and they can make a vaccine out of it and administer it to animals. And it didn't work too well. Uh, uh, but later on, it was thought to just use the genetic code for the spike protein in a messenger RNA or adenoviral DNA, so-called genetic vaccines. Now, this idea has really uh, caught the eye of, of uh, pharmaceutical companies. You know, recently, uh, the companies have announced influenza vaccines that will be messenger RNA. <clears throat> but the problem with these is there's no containment of where the genetic code is going to go. Uh, there's no way to limit how much is taken up by cells and then for how long it's going to be produced. So unless an antigen is really benign, uh, you know, if one of the flu antigens like a neuramidase, uh, for instance, uh, was uh, produced in the wrong place at the wrong time, we could really be in trouble. I, I don't think these messenger RNA or adenoviral DNA products, because they don't control how much antigenic stimulus have, I don't think they're going to go too far uh, in human vaccine development just because of the the safety concerns. And the other shocking revelation is on trial site news uh, in work done by Sasha Ladipova. uh, She's demonstrated by using the original data that the complications of the vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna for sure, are linked to specific lots, manufacturing lots that they're not randomly distributed. And she compares it against influenza, the conventional uh, killed uh, influenza vaccine. It's randomly distributed across lots, meaning someone has an adverse reaction to the flu shot. It's probably something wacky in their immune system, not the flu shot. But in this case, with the COVID-19 vaccines, it's limited to specific lots. So that tells you it's not a person problem. It's not a recipient problem. It's a problem with the product. And at the crony capitalism meeting in Washington a few months ago, Uh, with Senator Ron Johnson. I was there as a lead uh, witness. Uh, Johnson said, listen, he comes from a manufacturing background. When you have complications related to specific lots, or if you had cars that came off the the assembly line, there was certain recall problems with specific uh, VIN numbers, you know you've got a manufacturing problem. And now in data that was released from the EMA, we know what the problem is, actually. It turns out that the majority of the lots are actually the, the RNA is degrading. And it's not very little uh, uh, viable materials being injected. That explains why so many people get the vaccine and nothing happens because they're not getting much viable genetic material. But in those specific lots where the complications are occurring, it's probably a proxy for good manufacturing, good product supply chain handling, keeping things super cooled, uh, limited use of the multi-use files, probably all of those things are what's accounting for someone getting a strong installation of the genetic code for the lethal spike protein, then in fact, uh, dying of the vaccine. Uh, And the World Council for Health report, June 11th, 2022, chronicles in the US CDC VAERS system, 
the UK yellow card system and the EJU UJU system, WHO VigiSafe system. Over 40,000 people worldwide have died of the vaccines within a few days. That's what was reported to the safety systems. The deaths that occur months later probably don't get reported, but just the immediate death risk is extraordinary. Now, in that pharmacovigilance report by the World Council of Health, they point out with prior vaccines, just a handful of events are pulled off the market. We would never let something go on for 40,000 deaths. Never. Dr. Uncle is kind of like uh, IBM's Watson, where it just spits out perfect answers with perfect citations. It's the most uncanny thing in the world. It's the most impressive. I say it as a compliment. It's the most wildly imp- Sorry for that lowbrow comment. I know you guys are having a very intellectual conversation. I'm just sitting here drooling watching you. Sorry, George. Well, I know we're coming up to the end of our hour, and uh, I always want to ask the Remdesivir question as the last one. And if you look at the history with, uh, I, I don't mean to be political, but Donald Rumsfeld with Gilead and the Tamiflu uh, taint uh, that we had, and then, oops, anthrax, um, you know, it seemed like this uh, contrived thing again, this manufactured crisis thing again. And here Remdesivir kind of gets force-fed and force-fit after failing in Ebola, after failing in malaria, I believe, uh, failing a couple of times anyway. Uh, gets trotted out again. It seemed like they cherry-picked the data to go from the 15 days to the 11 days. Bobby Kennedy talked about it in his book uh, with Children's Health Defense Fund. Where are we on remdesivir? And is it they're putting all their marbles in this uh, RS uh, uh, RD uh, blocker? Uh, I can't remember what the polymerase blocker is, um, but... But it seems like they have a solution and they're just trying to find a problem that fits it. Well, just we'll pick up remdesivir as an RNA-dependent polymerase inhibitor. <clears throat> and uh, what we know there is, uh, you know, there was this initial enthusiasm that it could be a, a, a you know, repurposed antiviral. It went through clinical studies. Uh, we got to November of 2020. World Health Organization called a multidisciplinary meeting, all the clinical investigators, the, the uh, ethicists, critical care docs, European side of critical care followed. And, uh, and the WHO did the biggest study. I mean, everybody wanted this to work, but it was clear that remdesivir did not work. Uh, it caused liver injury, kidney injury. And in November of 2020, the World Health Organization declared remdesivir should not be used in the hospital, period. Should not be used to treat COVID patients because it doesn't work. And what happened since that time, instead of the U.S. actually following the WHO and shutting it down, uh, our Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, they actually put a premium on a hospital admission if they would use remdesivir, probably because the financial deals were already made. So hospitals were getting a 20% bonus if they would give a five-day infusion of remdesivir, which the WHO said didn't work, was potentially dangerous. And so, you know, I think historians are going to write about this for quite some time. Talk about hospitals taking a risk uh, because uh, you've you've got a, dr- a drug that a worldwide body has studied. Now, it turns out two years later, in May of 2022, the WHO Solidarity Group published in Lancet a, a meta-analysis of all the remdesivir studies, and it still falls in the lines of being neutral. It doesn't help patients at all. And if they do develop some kidney injury or liver injury, uh, it can lead to their demise. Uh, but to have this be the featured approach uh, where we had other drugs, you know, uh, far more successful in the Henry Ford study was the early use of hydroxychloroquine in the hospital. Huge study, thousands of patients. Uh, also, uh, Dr. J.J. Roster down in Florida, the ICON study published in CHEST, very successful in using ivermectin in U.S. patients, inpatient. And instead of those opportunities being advanced and having, uh, you know, have them become part of clinical practice, uh, they were quickly abandoned. We've never had large, high-quality clinical trials of therapy. In fact, uh, you know, the NIH did a very a small study of hydroxychloroquine, very late. It was neutral, didn't cause harm neutral, and uh, they gave up on it. There's been some inpatient, uh, very small trials of ivermectin, like for three days at a low dose, and people give up on it. But in clinical practice, the clinical standards uh, developed because patients did get better on these drugs, 
when doctors use them for longer courses earlier in the course of disease at the right dose. So we have this interface between community standard of care is what doctors have figured out works in COVID-19 supported by available sources of evidence where there's signals of benefit, but we don't have definitive trials on anything and acceptable safety. And then with remdesivir, we simply don't have acceptable safety and we've got a worldwide body saying, don't use it. So uh, this week was the first uh, class action lawsuit announced in Fresno, California. Uh, Lead attorney Watkins was there. I made a presentation on stage, packed house in a church in Fresno, California. You You could cut the tension with a knife in the air. Families are angry and dozens of people have lost their lives and the charges are going to be honestly torturous interference assault and battery just everything uh, because it wasn't just you know remdesivir being given and patients dying but also the denial of ivermectin the denial of full dose steroids colchicine full dose aspirin good nutritional care the denial of, of having family at the bedside so all these rights were stripped away There was no medication reconciliation. If someone's on a drug as an outpatient, it must and can be continued as an inpatient if the patient wants it. Shared decision-making. If someone's in the hospital and they say, well, I want ivermectin, they need to go get it for the patient. This business of telling patients, no, they can't get it, uh, that violates shared decision-making. I pointed that out to the crowd uh, that these uh, people getting their civil liberties stripped away when they became inpatients for COVID. This is going to become... Uh, I think some really hot um, testimony in, in these cases as they move forward. Um, you know, when you get the insert on a new drug as a doctor, uh, which is usually an FDA um, warning or some kind of guidance on what the target population is and outcomes and so forth, uh, you would you have these kind of rules of thumb, like a Kaplan-Meier curve that could show you the efficacy of the drug versus the risk. Could, how did the how did those normal safeguard processes get missed with remdesivir? Just emergency it, authorization. Yeah, I think emergency use, uh, pre-purchase of products. Once governments pre-purchase products, they actually don't want to know. They, yeah. They've already they've already bought it, right? They've already bought the farm. Uh, it's like with the vaccines, they already bought them before we even knew if they did anything. Now these these bivalent vaccines, of which there's no human data, and even in animals, it looks like they don't work. Uh, the U.S. has already bought them. They've, they've already bought them. So I think pre-purchase is part of this really terrible problem because once the, once the money changes hands, the companies don't care. They're not going to produce any regulatory dossier. The emergency use authorization is very loose. And these products just start to be used. Uh, one thinks of the emergent bio solutions when they stockpiled the smallpox vaccine and, and 60 million, 120 million doses. And then all of a sudden we have an attenuated smallpox monkeypox. It, it, it almost seems like the solution, the cart shows up before the horse in some of these things. It's true. Uh, we know with monkeypox, there was already pre-purchase of you know millions of doses of the Bavarian Nordic Genios vaccine, uh, which is a double-stranded live attenuated vaccine. This is really worrisome. It's never been proven to prevent a single case of smallpox or monkeypox. We know that its predecessor smallpox vaccine was tried on about a quarter million military, and it was a disaster. It caused heart damage. Uh, we know that, uh, that, 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 that these vaccines are cardiotropic. Uh, and now we have uh, this monkeypox scare, instead of treating patients with a safe and effective drug called T-pox, which should be the featured approach, there's an immediate discussion and pre-purchase of monkeypox vaccines. The vaccines are not treatment. It's almost as if people have lost their minds on vaccines. I, you know, Every time we see a, a hospitalized case, everybody wants to comment about the vaccine. I said, the vaccine is not a treatment. There's two things that reduce hospitalization and death in SARS-CoV-2, in monkeypox, and all these other illnesses. One is early treatment, and then two is prior immunity. Prior immunity will always lessen the intensity and severity of illness. Those two things, not taking a vaccine. And just to get the disclaimers out of the way, you recommend all the things that normal doctors would say, lose weight, 
reduce the sugar in your diet, exercise, you know, get out and get sunshine, all these vitamin C, vitamin D as just a baseline, just so we can eliminate any attacks, you know, from the oh, trolls. You're not eliminating anything. That that exact sentence is what got me banned from YouTube, recommending vitamin D and uh, turmeric. You know, you know, all I can do is just point you to my peer-reviewed publications. That's as good as you get. And it does list in the McCullough Protocol. It's called the OTC Bundle in Acute Treatment. It's zinc, vitamin C, vitamin D, quercetin, and then over-the-counter famotidine or Pepsid. And it's all supported by uh, the best available evidence. Again, we're just looking for a signal of benefit and acceptable safety. We're not looking for large, conclusive, randomized trials. Twenty to 40,000 patients are needed. Those trials don't exist. They're not even planned right now. Uh, so the treatment of patients with COVID-19 was far more an exercise of clinical judgment than it was definitive data. And I, I think what America needed to have is experienced clinicians, doctors who were treating patients in Washington, leading the response, not bureaucrats that have never seen a patient who are going to try to do small, lousy trials. That's not going to help America. We don't need the NIH doing a 300 or 400 person trial. That's a waste of time and effort. If they're not going to do a 20 or 40,000 patient trial, they should just not do it. And we'll use our clinical judgment and move forward. So that's basically what they've delivered on the therapy side is inconclusive trial after inconclusive trial. Thank goodness we figured out how to treat it and use the drugs in combination. We got so many Americans through the illness. And you know what? The word is out. There's been home treatment guides, telemedicine services. The vast majority of people are getting early treatment. A recent paper by Verkirk and colleagues, a survey of 18,000 patients showed that the, throughout the pandemic, the only people hospitalized were those who got no early treatment uh, and they were either denied treatment or didn't know about it. And they got hospitalized. Anybody who gets some treatment, they can help avoid the hospital and get through the illness. And, and we're, we're basically down to a COVID inevitable mentality, not a COVID zero mentality. Pretty much everybody's going to get it and we'll get through it. Thank you very much. It's been an honor. Thank and you. Thank you, gentlemen, for both of you. And uh, I will put the links to Dr. McCullough's book, uh, The Courage to Face uh, COVID-19 and the Biopharmaceutical uh, Complex. I will put that in the description as well as your Twitter and as well as your website. And, of course, George's books, George's Twitter, George's website, all that good stuff. I'll put it in the description. Gentlemen, thank you so much for that. Uh, thanks for doing my job. I just got to sit here and listen, so that was cool. And um I'll wrap this one up. George, I'll text it to you as soon as it's uploaded. And Dr. McCullough, I'll see you in two minutes for the next episode, which is okay. is the culminating episode of this week. So, thank gentlemen, you. thank you so much. God bless. God bless America. Uh, 